Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hi, thanks for joining me today. Really looking forward to today's conversation with Angela Cheng Simony. Angela is the Senior Vice President, Talent and Chief HR Officer at Harvard Business Publishing, which is obviously a phenomenal brand, phenomenal resource for leaders around the world in the world of business and beyond. So really looking forward to finding out what's on the mind of leaders across the globe. So Angela, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. And whereabouts are you based? So I'm in New England, specifically New Hampshire, but our offices are a stone's throw from the Harvard University campus. Brilliant. So yeah, you've got over 30 years of experience in the global HR, executive HR leadership side of things. Before we get into what's on the minds of HR leaders and executives, would you give us just a two-minute snapshot of your career that feeds into where you are now? I wish I could say that my journey has been intentional and you know, well <laughs> thought out, and it's actually been a combination of serendipity and some mistakes, quite honestly. And I think it has only been in the last several years, Ben, where the fact that I have not held down a job anywhere for longer than three years is no longer a liability. For a long time, having to explain why I couldn't stay anywhere with any longevity, you know, was was an issue, was an issue for my narrative. And now I think I'm able to say that I have proven that HR is transferable regardless of context, whether the sector, the life stage of the organization. If HR leaders fundamentally understand what inspires and motivates employees and can link that clearly with the business strategy, they can find success anywhere. Absolutely. And I think that lends itself quite beautifully for Harvard Business Publishing because it's industry agnostic. You're looking at across all industries, sectors, issues, and so on. So it probably is a, a benefit. I love that. I will remember that. That's exactly right, though. Yes. Oh, I should have come to your interview. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Angela, I was really looking forward to chatting to see what's on the mind of business leaders and organizational leaders because, you know, we tend to sort of talk in generic terms of it's, I don't know, the great resignation or pandemic management, remote, work, whatever it may be. But I'm just trying to get my finger on the pulse of what the leaders at national or international businesses are thinking about I'm not sure quite how to work that out. Is it data-driven as in articles or written stuff like that or the topics that are covered? So can I just firstly go into what does Harvard Business Publishing do just for people who may have been living under a rock for a little while? And then, yeah, what is on the mind of business leaders at the moment? So two years ago, Harvard Business Review celebrated its 100th birthday, which means that organizations that we've written about, some of them don't even exist any longer. So we are an offshoot of Harvard Business School, but fully independent. We maintain our editorial independence, which is very important. We seek out the best ideas regardless of their origin. So 30% comes from HBS and the other 70 comes from schools like INSEAD or LSE or Stanford. So we really are agnostic in terms of where our authors and contributors come from. But so over that remarkable arc, I think we have never seen times as turbulent as they are now. Right. right. The number of things that leaders need to balance stems from social to economic to global social, you know, warfare to whether or not diversity is good for businesses. It is mind boggling. And then health and the mental wellness and where people should work and how often they should work. And it is almost too much for a single leader to comprehend. 
And I think at a micro level, then, where I see that issue really coming home to roost is for middle managers. And I think that if executive teams don't stop and take a moment and think about how all of their really fine and well thought out strategic plans, how they're being executed and where that burden falls, then even the best laid plans won't come to fruition because middle managers continue to balance their players and coaches, right? They have to make sure that their teams are functioning highly while managing their own plate of work, who's taking care of them, are they in line with the messages that their leaders want them to send while still making room for how they may personally be feeling about things? So all of those pressures come to bear right at that middle management who may or may not have just the right enough information to make the right decisions at any given time. And you see the comments around the internet about well, what exactly do we need middle management for anymore when we've gone remote or hybrid and stuff and suddenly... Managers are having to justify their existence, all that sort of stuff. What are you seeing in the industry around that sort of topic? You know, that is actually a headline that I've only recently seen, and it really makes me furrow my brows because, <laughs> you know, it's so often said that people don't leave organizations, they leave their managers. Yeah. It's their managers who give yeah. them the daily care and feeding, right? That they're heard, that they get the direction, they get the support, they get someone who advocates for them. Without that, I just don't know how you can scale that sense of community, that culture that we're all trying to replicate now that we're not in the office. Executives simply cannot do that in organizations that say are beyond 50 people. Even if you look anthropologically, beyond 50 is when tribes started to break up. And so when an organization gets to be at that critical mass, you need another set of leaders yeah. to make sure that people still understand what the battle plan is. If they think they can do better by removing those leaders, let's talk to them in three years because I don't think they'll be here. And then in terms of what Harvard Business Publishing covers, produces in terms of the content topics, do you see any rising trends of what issues are going to be covered more and into the future? Obviously, AI is the hot topic these days, but do you see that sort of sustained and or are there any other issues that we'll start to read about more? Yeah, I think AI for sure is going to be in the ether for a while because it is changing so much. And we are still talking about it because it is still unfolding. And just this morning, I heard about President Joe Biden and there's a fake tape that's being sent to people's you know, voicemails telling them not to turn out and vote. Oh. And there will be those that believe that campaign. So for as long as there is bad information being dispelled, I think leaders have to continue to talk about that because mm -hmm. we have to make sure that it is counteracted with the right information. And that is true for employees. If they're working off bad information, they will go sideways on you. And again, you won't be able to have the organization perform at the level you need. Yeah. So certainly AI. And I think we will be talking about upskilling for a while because there is deep level of concern, right? We're already seeing jobs that are being completely made obsolete because they're being replaced with AI. So we have to talk about what do we do with all that talent? That's not good for economies. That's not good for society. Mm -hmm. And I think leaders have a responsibility to think about what that means whenever there's a disruption. At least I do. Yeah. So we run a process called the HR Business Accelerator, which helps businesses either start or grow their businesses. But because we've done that across hundreds and hundreds of companies around the world, I've sort of been bottling up some of our coaching process into an AI tool that we share with clients. And there's a part of me that's a little bit scared about sharing my brain out there in that sort of way. We haven't <laughs> done it with video yet so that people can't video me and turn me into something, that, thankfully, for that. Originally, it was the Harvard Business Review or the magazine. So I don't know if a magazine can be the embodiment of something, but 
in my mind, HBR has been sort of the embodiment of thought leadership. And because that term gets bandied around so much for people trying to grow businesses, reach new markets, all that sort of thing, sometimes I think they would consider it to be on the decline, that there's so much saturation of content, thought leadership, all that sort of stuff out there. What are your or the organization's views on thought leadership in terms of either personal and business branding, i.e. getting the word out there, reaching potential markets, reaching potential business leaders who might, in fact, hire you for services? Yeah. So Harvard Business Publishing, which is sort of the umbrella, HBR is only one third of our Mm -hmm. business. Another third is our education division, which is responsible for the distribution and selling and publishing of case studies, which graduate students are going to be very familiar with. <laughs> and then the last third is our professional services arm, our corporate learning. And we partner with the Global 2000 to help co-create their leadership and professional development programs. So we play in all those three spaces because we believe that taken together on the backs of our HBR content, we can then help inculcate and promulgate good leadership thinking. And so we're always on the lookout for new voices, for fresh perspectives, because we can't afford to rest on our laurels. You're absolutely right. There is so much content. In fact, we used to be a monthly, and now we are every other month, because we really want to take our time to curate what's out there. We're not a news organization, right? So you're not going to hear the latest on Middle East tensions. But what you might hear about is how Middle East tensions are changing the supply chain. Yeah as an example, right? And so that's got a longer lead time to really do the research and to think that piece through. And long form is not as prevalent as it once was, right? People want to see things in 144 characters. (laughs) They want to see it in a TikTok video that lasts 15 seconds. So when you've got a piece that's thousands and thousands of words that spans, you know, multiple pages, you do naturally weed out people who might not have the attention span or the interest to do that. So we have to make sure that the content is relevant. We have to make sure that it is applicable in the moment. That's a big premise of our work is that it's not just research. It's not just academia. It's then how do I take this and then actually immediate apply it to the business problem that I'm trying to solve. And so I think so long as we keep our finger on the pulse on what are the hot issues of today, then we can respond to them in the magazine. And we do that through advisors. We do that through watching trends. We watch that through what are people Google searching? What are they searching on our own site to help us forecast what's top of mind for our readers? I'm curious, taking to every other month for publication and taking time to have these deep thought pieces, but is Harvard Business Publishing going down the TikTok path, the short bursts of information path, or is it always, I don't know, thicker (laughs) pieces of research? So we are trying to blend both. There was a, a sort of a digital revolution when Adi Ignatius, our, our editor-in-chief, came on board several years ago because the previous EIC said they would never blog, that HBR would never blog. You know, that's not meeting the reader where they are. Mm. And so now we have the most active LinkedIn account. It has the most engaged readers because people want to see our content and they want to be able to read the headline, the summation. And then if they want a deeper dive, then they go to our website or they get a subscription. We do have some short-form pieces in the form of hbr.org, which refreshes every single day. And then we do do some video work that's not quite TikTok, not quite Instagram, but we have lots of podcasts and we certainly do a lot of live events. So we are trying to be multimodal. And I'll just give a plug. We're going to be launching a brand new HBR app this month, which will remake the experience for the reader there. So we are really trying to meet the readers where they are in all the different ways that they can get their own. And do you think that the CEOs or the 
the leaders within different functions of these global 2000 businesses, do they read the white papers and the big chunky pieces or are they so time strapped that they want the smaller bite-sized stuff? Oh, that's such a good question, Ben. I don't know the answer to that, but suffice to say that we don't try to make HBR just for CEOs. We want it to also be for aspiring leaders. We don't want to be inaccessible. We don't want our content to be esoteric. And that defeats the purpose of really, again, promoting good leadership everywhere. And that exists in every level of the organization. So I think anybody who is interested, there's always, you know, sort of a summary that runs alongside sort of a key highlights of the article. There's a summary at the back. Again, we try to get the information to you in a way that you will best digest it. Yeah. It's funny when I was in my HR career inside corporate, like anyone I had my books on the shelf and stuff, but there were several of the HBR magazines for, as you mentioned earlier, some of the key case studies and some pieces on new ways of doing things. And I kept them for years just because I can use that somewhere else. It was sort of that timeless thinking. So I loved that. I see you're speaking at Talent Summit. That's an exciting event, which is in Dublin where I'm based. So yeah, I'm curious, how did you get involved with that? Because I know the team that put that on, it's going to be an amazing show. Yeah, I can't wait. It'll be my first time. A friend of mine connected me with Rob. You know, I would tell you that since the pandemic, I've really been very intentional to build out my network. And not for any specific reason other than to just feel more connected to the HR community and to the business community at large. And it is a bit of a virtuous cycle. You do a good turn for one person and then they return the favor. So now I'll be speaking at the Talent Summit and I'm really, really excited. The lineup is going to be fantastic. I don't want to steal Rob's thunder, but I'm really looking forward to the theme of the conference this year. Definitely. So yeah, if you're listening to this on the go, check the show notes. We'll have the link to the Talent Summit as well. Yeah, I think it's an excellent event. And if you're listening to this in the future, when it's already been and gone, we'll still have that and you can check out, there'll probably be some sort of summary notes and things like that in there. It's fantastic. So to close then, I guess, Angela, is what are your thoughts on what's coming down the road for HR professionals inside organizations, but also people running HR businesses, i.e. consulting firms, software firms? What do you see coming down the road that they should be aware of in terms of the world of work? I think it's going to be how we find the sweet spot between the technology and the people, the tension that exists, not just because of AI, but because there are more efficient ways to do the work than the ways we've done it. And we need to find those efficiencies because teams are getting leaner and leaner. The expectation is to go faster and faster, cheaper and cheaper, and yet somehow preserve the sense that the relationship is still very human, that it is still very one-on-one. And so you don't want to outsource those bits that only people can produce for you. And you want to give people the skills so that they're comfortable working with the technology, but not so much so that they feel threatened by the technology. It is an interesting time to be in this discipline. You know, you started by saying that I've been at this for over 30 years and I hadn't anticipated that I would be at this so long that I would see organized labor come back into the fold. When I entered the workforce, it was definitely on its way out. It was dying. And now it's on the upswing because employees are struggling to find their voice. Mm -hmm. And so they believe that third-party representation is the way to do that. Again, I think that goes back to, do they feel seen? Do they feel heard? And the threat of AI, you know, what does that do? So I think we have to continue to remember what makes this discipline human resources. And yet, how do we amplify that with all the tools at our disposal, including AI, and try and find a way that at the end of the day, people say, you know what, I'm ready to go back and do it again. Absolutely. So you just took me back to 
one of my first HR jobs where I was on a 100% unionized manufacturing business. And if you looked at your watch, people would suddenly accuse you of being of clock watching as in doing time and motion studies, you know, Frederick Taylorism type of stuff. <laughs> He's watching us. He's counting the number, whatever the production number. No, I just want to know the time. What time is lunch? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it's come back, as you say, yeah, with the rise of AI, that the conversation has swung back. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's very interesting indeed. I should also point out that that same business, they once had a stop work meeting. So they all went on strike and had vote on a few different things, but they added one more item to their list of demands or list of things they voted on. And the union rep came back in and he said that my car in the car park, which was a 1975 Volvo station wagon, was the worst car in the car park. So I was touched that they'd taken the time out of their angry stop work meeting to tell me that my car was the worst car. It was my first ever car. But so I always have a soft spot for the unions. So I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm glad to see them back. Angela, this is wonderful. I'm going to be sharing the link to your LinkedIn, if that's okay, and also to Harvard Business Publishing, but also to the Talent Summit, because I think there's some opportunities to learn in there and see what you're up to and see what comes in the future. So thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.